The following message is brought to you by Sovereign Grace Church. We're honored that you're taking the time to stream this sermon. It's our hope that you are receiving this sermon as a supplement to your active participation in a local body of believers where pastors who know you and love you faithfully preach for your benefit every week. If you are not a member of a local church, then we'd encourage you to find a local church today. For more information about Sovereign Grace Church or other churches in our denomination, please visit www.sobgracemn.org. Well, if you're a guest, uh, you have come while we work our way through the book of Revelation. Up to this point, Pastor Rick has led us through chapter 1 and through the first two letters addressed to the several seven churches which make up chapters 2 and 3. Today, I'll take over where Pastor Rick left off addressing the third church, the church in Pergamum. As John already said, please be praying for Pastor Rick as he's serving Providence Community Church. Lord willing, he'll be back in the saddle next week. In, in preparation for this message, I thought about how truth and lies can shape what we believe and how we respond to what we believe. While pondering, uh, my mind went to two characters from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you're a Chronicles and Narnia fan, I'm sure you've read or watched the movie The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's one of seven books in the Chronicles of Narnia. There are several reasons why I enjoy the Chronicles of Narnia, but one reason is the theme of truth versus lies. Here's what I mean. In the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, a, constant, uh, a contrast arises early in the story between Edmund and Lucy. Edmund and Lucy are brother and sister in the story. At the beginning of the story, Edmund and Lucy both encountered Narnia separately, and both of them respond to Narnia in different ways. We read that Lucy fosters a relationship with this fawn called Mr. Tumnus. Lucy is interested in learning more about the truth of Narnia and about Mr. Tumnus. Lucy eventually learns about the king of Narnia, the great lion Aslan. Edmund, on the other hand, meets the evil white witch and immediately gives into his desires, in particular, his love for, anybody remember? Turkish Delight. It's just scarfing it down if you've seen the movie or read the book. Edmund isn't concerned about the truth of Narnia, but only concerned with filling his belly with sweets. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis, the author, is trying to paint a contrast between good and evil. Because as we read today, not all people who profess Jesus truly believe Jesus. And so Jesus calls the church to pull the weeds and to conquer what is contrary to the gospel. If they conquer, Jesus will reward them. In this letter, we read the desire of Jesus to see the church be faithful on the outside, resisting the persecution, but also faithful on the inside. To not only know that Narnia and Aslan exist, but to live in the reality of that knowledge. So I invite you to read with me from Revelation 2, verses 12 to 17. God's word says this. And to the angel of the Pergamum church write, to the Pergamum church write, the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword, 
I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Pergamum was one of the largest cities in the ancient world. It was 55 miles due north of Smyrna. If you were here last week, Pastor Rick preached on the letter to the Smyrnans. And Pergamum was the capital city of the Roman province of Asia. But the reputation of Pergamum had less to do with its economics and its politics. There was something more going on in Pergamum. The religious climate was through the roof. Pergamum was known for several of the most important Greek pagan cults of the day. Let me try to reconstruct the atmosphere, the religious atmosphere in Pergamum. Here we go. If you were to enter the city in the first century, you have noticed this giant altar of Zeus. Pergamum would sit on a hill, and you would come up, uh, you'd come up from the valley onto the hill, and you would see this giant altar dedicated to Zeus. Here, here's how big this altar was hovering over and looking down on you. It was roughly 115 feet wide, 100 feet deep, and had a huge stairway, 65 feet wide. It was an impressive architectural structure for the day. Near the altar of Zeus, you would also found the temple of Athena. Athena was the patron goddess in Pergamum. She was the goddess of wisdom, craft, and war. The temple of Athena was smaller, but equally elegant. It was beautiful. Pergamum was also the center of the goddess Dionysus. She was the goddess of the grape harvest. She was the goddess of wine, fertility, and religious ecstasy. So at this point, you might be thinking, wow, that's a lot going on in a city like that. But there's more. Perhaps more celebrated than Zeus, Athena, and Dionysus was the worship of Asclepius, often referred to as the savior in Greek mythology. The symbol of Asclepius was the serpent, which first, first century Christians would have considered a sign of Satan. Now to this day, the sign of Asclepius, in addition to the serpent, there is a staff, is the symbol of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. So in an odd way, the legacy of Asclepius lives on through that symbol. And there's more. There's more going on in Pergamum. If these cults were not enough, the most prominent and powerful cult was the imperial cult of Caesar. 
In 29 BC, Pergamum became the first city to build and dedicate a temple to Augustus. Perhaps more than any other city in the first century, the city of Pergamum was the most dedicated to the worship of Caesar. Now, this was not good news for an exclusive faith like Christianity because the imperial cult of Caesar required residents to sprinkle grains of incense on to the altar and declare Caesar is Lord. The imperial cult of Caesar didn't exclude other faiths, but they wanted ultimate allegiance made to Caesar. What we read in the letter to Pergamum is that in the midst of this pluralistic culture, the church needed to discern truth, which, be, which would be a demonstration of their faithfulness until the end. And quite honestly, I think this is a message that the 21st century American church needs to hear today, that we need to hear today. The 21st century temples look differently from 1st century temples. The pluralism of the 21st century has taken on different identities and names. And with the rise of technology, availability and access has increased for people in the church to be influenced by all kinds of philosophies, religions, and worldviews. With all this said, the problem persists and is even magnified, I think, for the church in the 21st century. Therefore, today, let's be discerning of what we see in the world and what we see in the church. Christ is calling us to be discerning Christians, not only this morning, but going forth. So here, here's the outline for this passage. It's easily, easily broken down into three sections. In verses 12 and 13, we have this commendation. Jesus affirms the church. And then in verse 14 to 16, we have the warning that is very strong coming from the Lord. And then in verse 17, we have the reward. We'll just systematically go through this passage. And I think what we'll see is the relevance of needing to heed the same warning to Pergamum, which leads us, it says, we're rewarded by God. So let's first start with the um, commendation, the affirmation given to the Pergamum church. Verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Wow, something remarkable happened at Pergamum. It says the church held fast to the name of Jesus and did not deny the name of Jesus in the midst of persecution. Let that land on you. What if a member of Sovereign Grace Church was put into prison or faced death because of their allegiance to King Jesus, their refusal to say, the president is Lord? The fact that some within the church of Pergamum held fast is remarkable. This is remarkable because of what marked the reputation of Pergamum. You've heard of Sin City, right? Las Vegas. You've heard of the Windy City, Chicago. We've got the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul. 
If there was a nickname that marked Pergamum, it was Satan's city. It was Satan's city. And despite persecution from Satan, God tells the saints at Pergamum these comforting words in verse 13, I know where you dwell. God has not forgotten where they live. In the letter to the Ephesian church, God made it known that he knows their works. In the second letter of the seven, God know that in Smyrna, what they have endured, and now we read that God knows everything about the environment that this church was in. These words, I know where you dwell, are worth pondering because whatever challenges God's, children's, God's children faces, no matter what happens in culture, God knows what's going on. Listen, if you are struggling by grace to remain faithful, when those around you revel in faithlessness, Jesus says, I know where you dwell. And even more, God has sovereignly and strategically placed you right where you at right where you are at and he calls you to walk in faithfulness and be a beacon of light in the midst of darkness god knew that the church in pergamum resided in a culture that was not just indifferent toward christians but demonstrated loyalty to caesar thus the persecution of people who did not give allegiance to caesar as lord was very real my mind immediately goes to some of our brothers and sisters serving overseas in cultures where if people knew they were a Christian, that meant death. This was the case with Antipas. We don't know much about Antipas, but it's not hard to imagine that his martyrdom was due to his unwillingness to offer this incense sacrifice to Caesar while also calling him Lord, do you see the conundrum here? The gospel demands complete allegiance to Jesus. And Rome is saying, you can call Jesus Lord as long as you also call Caesar Lord. And the Pergamum church refused, and it cost Antipas his life. This is why Jesus affirms the church by saying, you held fast, you did not deny my name, you kept the faith, even when it costs one of your church members their life. Now, in this respect, may Sovereign Grace Church be like the Pergamum Church. May Sovereign Grace Church be a faithful witness within the culture that we dwell. And I think in light of that, I'm just take a moment to highlight the culture that we dwell in. I think, I think that missions video is really helpful on this point. In the City View report, which is what I have right here. It's a publication of religious data in the Twin Cities. Uh, the title is, is Welcome to Paganstan. The implication, the Twin Cities, is becoming religiously diverse and, yes, pagan. Here are just a few highlights of Paganstan from this report. The Twin Cities hosts the largest Cambodian Buddhist temple in the U.S. The Twin Cities has the largest Hindu temple in North America. The Twin Cities has one of the largest concentration, get this, of witches in the United States. The world headquarters for the cult of Ekinkar is in Chanhassen. I used to live out that way. It is a huge golden temple. 
The Twin Cities has the largest witch New Age publishing company in the world. Oakdale has a Mormon temple, and they don't dull out Mormon temples. They got a lot of churches, but temples are unique. And I'm just barely scratching the surface. Even in the ethnoburb that I live in, Burnsville, just within a short drive, I can make my way to a mosque, a Mormon church, a Unitarian church, a universal Unitarian church. I'm not even sure what the difference is. They seem the same. A spiritual wellness center and a prosperity preaching church, all within a few minutes drive. According to Pew Research, spirituality in America is actually on the rise, along with indifference toward religion and on the decline, Christianity. I would be remiss if I didn't mention the secular philosophy that just pervades our culture. Like Antipas, when the culture says, all roads lead to Rome, may we say the only way to know God is through his son, Jesus Christ. When your latest and greatest book or professor on world religion says, Christians, Muslims, and Jews all worship the same God, may we say the only way to know God The only way to know God is by believing in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's no other way. And culture's trying to get you to say, yeah, there are lots of ways. Or at least there's multiple ways. You can have your way, but I get my way as well. And the answer is no. It says that Antipas was a faithful witness, which in the Greek can also mean martyr which he was, while we may not be put to death for our faith here in the United States, it is likely we will be criticized for believing in the name of Jesus. I know I have been. By folks closest to me, even. Believing that Jesus is the exclusive path to knowing God is dangerous in our culture, but biblical. That's what we read in God's word. And God is calling us to be faithful as we row against the tide of this ever-increasing pluralistic culture. He's calling us to be faithful, just like Antipas was faithful. When opposed by Satan's city, the church in Pergamon deserves some praise, no doubt. So the affirmation is justified and the front door was closed to Satan. But there was a problem in Pergamum. The church in Pergamum was allowing Satan to get into the back door. While Pergamum resisted Satan's attacks from the outside, Satan was attacking from the inside. And Jesus takes issue with the church's lack of vigilance against false teaching which began to arise within the church. If Satan can't get in the front door, he's going to find another, he's going to try to find another way in. And so he did at Pergamum. You might want to notice that what Jesus commended in the first letter to Ephesus, he condemns here to Pergamum. Here are verses 14 to 16. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. From reading these verses, we know that guarding the truth of the gospel 
is a major concern for Jesus. And Satan was making inroads. Let me explain what Satan sent in through the Pergamum back door. False teaching was leading to antinomian living, and the Nicolaitans are the first century version of the teaching of Balaam. The teaching of Balaam, verse 14, and the teaching of the Nicolaitans had a lot of similarities. If you were to read the book of Numbers, chapters 22 to 25, Balaam, the false prophet, teaches Balak to entice and seduce Israelite men, God's people, into sexual immorality and to worship their Moabite idols. So that's kind of the backstory of what's being said here in Revelation 2 to the church of Pergamum. Their sin was an egregious, egregious offense to a holy God. In the same way, the church in Pergamum was being taught, now by the Nicolaitans, that it's acceptable to claim allegiance to Christ and even be persecuted for Christ while at the same time taking liberty to sin. This only goes to show that the tricks of the devil are not new. The same tactics used by the devil against the Israelites, against the church of Pergamum, is no different today. What was specifically being taught in the Pergamum church? It appears that some were teaching that it was okay to find a pluralistic balance between these Greek pagan cults and Christianity. An example of, of a way Christianity and these Greek religions were coming together was through marriage. The marriage of a Christian to a non-Christian was being allowed by these false teachers. This is prohibited in the Bible. In general, tolerance was being preached for other religions. And being tolerant in this context meant blending faiths together, kind of like an a la carte. You go down to a la carte, food, right? You just kind of you get your corn, your mashed potatoes, you want to leave the broccoli, of course, unless it's got cheese on it, then it's all good. You just kind of take what you want and leave what you don't want. So they're blending things together. Now, to be tolerant in the first century in Pergamum meant an easier life. Therefore, there was pressure to compromise and to conform. It meant not going down the same road as Antipas, and it probably meant an economic advantage as well. If I can get them to like me, that's only going to help me. It appears that while some in the church held fast in the midst of persecution, false teaching was leading to licentious living, and the teaching in licentious living was also being tolerated, which is what Jesus takes issue with. If this isn't a warning for the 21st century American church and this church, I don't know what is. There is constant pressure for the church to conform to the ideals of the world. And there are false teachers who are trying to say that we should compromise. And more and more, because of technology, really, think about it, because of technology, false teachers from everywhere are finding their way into the local church. Before the rise of the internet, a pastor or several pastors taught the church and were held accountable by God's word. But technology has allowed many voices into the church, which means discerning doctrine is more challenging, but still very important. 
Let me give you an example of the challenge. As a result of, of just not growing up in the church, not becoming a Christian until my early 20s, I got Facebook friends of all kinds of shapes and sizes and uh, various political persuasions, all kinds of worldviews, different religious creeds. And don't recommend that to everyone, but I, 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 I allow that so I can get a temperature of the culture. But I will admit, there are some, to be very honest, who drive me more crazy than others from what they post. If you got Facebook, you know what I'm talking about. It's not the, it's not the non-religious folks, to be honest with you, uh, my agnostic or atheist friends. They don't drive me nuts. It's not the hyper-political folks, you know. I can ignore that. That's going to go away. Jesus will return. The people that drive me nuts, and honestly, my heart breaks for are those who call themselves Christian but deny the teachings of Christianity. My heart breaks for them. They profess Jesus as Savior, but they don't want him as Lord. First century Nicolaitans in Pergamum and some 21st century Nicolaitans are saying, yes, let's uphold the name of Jesus, but let's uphold different truths about God's design for sexuality and marriage, the issue in Pergamum. And Jesus takes issue with this teaching. He takes issue with those who practice sexuality outside of God's design. And God takes issue with those who tolerate Satan's attempt to reshape and reform God's design for sexuality and marriage. Again, doctrine and truth matter because doctrine and truth have implications. So we've got to be careful about what is being taught and what we allow to be taught. And you should be discerning when you're on social media. Very important. But the false teachings of the Nicolaitans is not just about sexuality, it's about idolatry. We do know from Romans 1 that the perversion of sexuality is idolatry, but there is more to the idolatrous practices in Pergamum. There was pressure being, being put on Christians to eat food sacrificed to idols. Read that in verse 14. To eat food sacrificed to idols may seem foreign to us. I haven't done that recently or seen it recently. But today, Christians face pressure to conform as well. In the first century, for Pergamum, to eat food sacrificed to idols meant to willingly participate in Greek pagan festivals and Greek pagan temple worship. And the refusal to participate in pagan temple sacrifices and festivals meant ostracism from the community. You're not going to participate? Fine. I'll show you what we think of you. They were ostracized. And so the question is, and the question for us is simple, do you compromise the integrity of the gospel for gain or to feel comfortable or to obtain status? So I admit, it, when you're in the world, it's tempting I remember working in the business world. It was, I was always, always tempted to compromise my faith for gain. There were teachers in Pergamum urging Christians to do exactly this, to compromise. And Jesus says to those who compromise, repent. Repent. It's verse 16. Do not only proclaim Jesus as Savior, but walk in a manner worthy of your Savior. Don't compromise. 
Because when you compromise, you are not light in a dark world and you are not honoring God. Instead, let's be discerning Christians. Be able to discern sound doctrine from false doctrine. Be able to discern the implications of sound doctrine from false doctrine. Be discerning by always going back to the Bible. The Bible, this book, is our window and how we discern truths from lies. We look right at it. That's how we understand the truth from the lies, especially as we engage the world. This also means what is taught from this pulpit matters, right? What is taught in college and career and youth and the various ministries here at Sovereign Grace Church, counseling, it matters. And the elders of this church hold each other to the highest standards of not only teaching sound doctrine, but also watching our lives as an example to the church, 1 Timothy 4.16. We're not here to fill the stage with, like, strobe lights or, the, you know, the smoke machines that come up, you know. It looks cool, I guess. But we're not here to do that. I'm not here to do a bungee down from the top to here. We're not here to entertain we are here to teach you sound, orthodox, biblical doctrine from God's word. We are here to encourage and equip you so that when you go out into the world, you will not, by God's grace, you will not compromise your biblical convictions, but you will be light in the midst of darkness. You will withstand Satan's attempt to, get, to try to get you to compromise. But for those who tolerate false teaching and compromise their faith. Jesus says this, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. This is the warning from Jesus. Now, a sword was mentioned in verse 12, and I waited to talk about it until I got here. We've already, re already read about this sword in Revelation 1.16, and we're going to hear more about this sword when we get to Revelation 19. Here again is verse 12 from today's passage. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. This sword is a reminder that life and death are in the hands of God. Here's, here's what Pastor, I've always wanted to quote Pastor Rick, now I got my chance. Several weeks back, he talked about the sword. No better person to quote. His word is like a sword full of life and power. It never fails to cut. With one edge, it cuts for salvation. It kills our self-righteousness, cuts the throat of our sin, slays our lust, but the other edge cuts with judgment for those who rebel against him. For them, is a word of destruction. I try to be dramatic with Pastor Rick's quote. <laughs> with a low voice. The word of the sword can have a life-giving effect or it can destroy. This two-edged sword is also a reminder to the Roman government of who ultimately is in power in Pergamum. The Romans ruled and reigned with the sword, but Jesus had, a, had the sharp two-edged sword that is mightier than any earthly sword. 
Therefore, the Pergamum church can be assured that God is sovereign over all, rule, all rulers and authorities, even if the city is called Satan's city. God is still sovereign. So how do you avoid the sword of Christ? The Lord gives us a gracious answer. We repent. So gracious. So kind of God to give us an opportunity to be drawn to him. Repentance is evidence that you are conquering. And what is repentance? It is turning away from your sin and turning to Christ. So are you stuck in some kind of sexual sin? Are you in some way compromising the gospel, the truth of the gospel? Are you tolerating false teachers? I think about your Facebook tweet or Twitter or Snapchat. I don't even know what else is going on these days in social media, but look at it. Are you tolerating it? And I'm not talking about going back and being nasty. That's not what I'm saying. But we've got to be careful with what we see and what we allow into our eyes, what we allow to shape us. We want truth of God's word to shape us. Jesus graciously calls you to repent because when you repent, you will prove to be a conqueror. Conqueror also means one who overcomes. Verse 17. To the one who conquers or the one who overcomes, I'll give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a, a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. <clears throat> to the one who conquers, Jesus provides rewards. Again, commonplace in apocalyptic literature, the book of Revelation being one of them, we have word pictures. The first word picture is hidden manna. What is that? Manna is a reference to Exodus 16, and it's also mentioned in the Gospel of John, chapter 6. You might remember that Israel was wandering in the wilderness, hungry. God miraculously provided manna from heaven as food. He provided. What Jesus is saying is that just as God provided for Israel, so he also provides for the new Israel, the church. God will provide for you. If you can hear what the Holy Spirit is saying in this warning, and if you repent, God will provide and sustain you throughout all eternity. I think it's helpful to compare this, this hidden manna with the temporal and earthly food that was sacrificed to idols in Pergamum. The hidden manna leads us to ponder and know, fall more in love with Christ. While the sacrifice food leads us away from Christ. We need to focus on what we do not see, but one day we will see face to face. And that is Jesus. Hidden manna. Saint God will provide for you in the midst of persecution, in the midst of standing up for what is right, what is biblical, what is true. God will provide for you. The second word picture is a white stone. The white stone has a new name written on it that no one knows except the person who receives it. And I have to be honest, I have no idea what the white stone is. <laughs> so if you got a suggestion, maybe you can let me know afterwards. I got no clue. There are multiple 
um, suggestions. Uh, John Stott, late great John Stott, said this, commentators have stumbled over one another with a variety of their interpretations. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you three possible interpretations of this white stone. And just realize there are more. The first interpretation is that the white stone is a reference to a white stone that was placed upon the breastplate of the high priest who entered into the holy place, into the temple in Jerusalem. It had multiple stones, and there was a white stone. The significance of the stone is that it represented one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and the stone, via the high priest, entered into the very presence of God. There's more to it, but the stone represents a ticket to enter into the presence of God. Here's your ticket, come on in. This might be a possibility because, once again, we see the continuity between the New Testament and the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, if John Stott had to pick one, he would have picked this position. The second possibility has to do with the judicial system in first century Pergamum. If you were convicted of a crime in Pergamum, you were given a black stone. Guilty, black stone. If you were found innocent, you were given a white stone. Found innocent, white stone. It's not difficult to see the word picture in play with this particular possibility. Those who hold fast to the name of Jesus and do not compromise the truth will be found innocent by Christ. The blood of Christ will find you innocent. Last, to be given a white stone in Pergamum was meant to show honor to a person. Uh, for example, in Pergamum, white stones were given as an invitation to an important event, perhaps a marriage ceremony. Get married, grab some white stones, put them in the invitation envelope. If you're going to invite me, make sure it's a diamond, I'll cash that out later. Again, the connection here is easy. If Jesus gives you a white stone, he is welcoming you, welcoming you into the marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19. Now, no matter what interpretation you find appealing, the bottom line is this. The hidden manna and the white stone are here in verse 17, not to keep us wondering, but to show us Christ. That's why they're here. It's an invitation from Christ. Christ is our reward for discerning doctrine and faithfully living in a manner worthy of the gospel until the end. Christ is our reward. I don't care about the white stone. Just give me Jesus. Just give me Jesus. There are many points of application from Revelation 2. 12 to 17, the necessity of church membership, church discipline, spiritual warfare, global missions and persecution, and global missions, just to name a few. But here's, here's one application point I want to highlight. I asked this question when I was done writing the message. How do we take the message to Pergamum, apply it, without becoming unnecessarily critical of one another? Right? We're called to discern. we got to Put some things in balance here. On the one hand, we're called to discern doctrine and be vigilant as we watch our lives. And as a church community, we watch one, one, each other's lives, right? So it means to be in community with one another. We're watching each other. We're walking with one another. On the other hand, 
we are messy and we sin. So how do we cultivate a church culture where we don't compromise while still being a church that wants to see the love, grace, and mercy of God poured out on people so that they are changed more and more into the likeness of Christ? What we don't do is lower the bar which scripture sets. Many churches want to lower the bar. We don't lower the bar. Discerning Christians know not to lower the bar. That's what Pergamum did, and that's why they were called to repent. What we can do is uphold truth in one hand and graciously walk with people with the other hand. And what holds together what we believe and what we do, both what holds both hands together, a heart changed by the love of Christ and a heart saturated with the love of Christ. By God's grace, we can avoid the Pergamum error by loving the gospel, falling more in love with the gospel, with all of the gospel's implications. We love that, cherish that, embrace that, soak in that. And we can also lovingly walk with one another. By God's grace, walk with one another in a way that honors God. Let's be a discerning church. Let's walk with one another as we discern truth from error.